0: Beaches of Normandy, yeah, a military activity called Operation Overlord, a risky operation that the Allied forces uh, felt led and compelled to take. 156,000 troops would participate, nearly 7,000 naval vessels would participate, over 12,000 aircraft would participate, over a million people would logistically participate in pulling this operation off Winston Churchill gave great pause to the pursuit of this activity saying it would cost tens of thousands of casualties but yet they went forward thank God it did not cost that many casualties but it did cost many many lives but it was an operation that had such value that it had to be done At this point in history, Nazi forces have pretty much overtaken Europe, and much ground had been lost at that moment, and a foothold needed to be gathered again so that that ground, that critical ground, could be retaken. Five beaches along the stretch of Normandy, France, were chosen as a place to fight and retake the ground. And one of the things that I want us to do during the month of March is to draw our attention to the need for reclaiming the ground of discipleship in Christianity. Now, this is ground, I believe, has, has been lost. It's ground that's become de-emphasized. And it's leaving us with a Christianity that's trying to be pulled off by some other measures. What is so clear in Scripture is the centrality of discipleship. Without it... Christianity cannot fulfill its mission and so I I tried to slim this teaching down to three areas three beaches if you will that we're going to get to the first one today is called the doorway of denying self this quote in your outline David Capellian says what's going on If 80-plus percent of Americans are Christians attending tens of thousands of church services every week, brimming with music, prayers, sermons, ceremonies, and missionary outreaches, why is America rapidly losing her very identity as a Christian nation? With the country dangerously polarized, millions of families disintegrating, including many Christian families, where is God? How come he's not infusing each believer's life with meaning and direction and joy and power like all the ministers say he will? How come so many so-called born-again Christians are getting divorced, taking antidepressants, hooked on online porn, or just plain confused, resentful, and dissatisfied with life? Now those are serious questions that indicate a serious problem within Christianity. We cannot close our eyes. Uh, if you actually, if I just stopped and said, you know, this is, this is enough information right here. Let's just ask these questions. Do you recognize these things are going on? And, and, and listen, they're not going on in the, uh, the weak nominal churches out there. right? They're going on here. If there was blatant honesty and we were to discuss how many of us would be described by a lack of meaning, a lack of direction, and a lack of joy, a lack of power, I think that we would be surprised that if we were honest, we're not experiencing Christianity at the level that we'd like to see it be experienced. And yet there are many, many, many Christians who are experiencing even less than what we are experiencing. There is a problem here. At some point, Christianity, if Christianity were a 1970s TV set, it would need that little red button on the back. Y'all remember that thing? You know who you are. You know, when the thing would just kind of get fritzed out, eventually it would run long enough and the lines would get real weird, you could reach back behind and press this little red button. They don't have these little red buttons anymore. But you press the little red reset button and the whole TV would go black and then it would pop back on and it would fix itself. You know, that same kind of thing happens with your, you know, your computer. You leave it running too long and it just all of a sudden starts to slow up and get weird and do weird stuff and stuff's kind of like freaking out across the screen and your, your handheld device. And you have to reset it, right? You've got to reboot thing. At some point... In Christianity, I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if we open up too many programs in our life. You know, you open up the the family program, the husband program, the job program, the entertainment program, the hobby program, the church program, the finances program. All that kind of gets opened up, and all of a sudden our lives start to slow and become dysfunctional, and you know stuff's just not working right anymore. And at some point you just got to reboot. I'm constantly having to be told that I'm one of those guys who opens up. 38 programs and just leaves them all open. You know, I may may need to get to one of those. Pete always is getting on me. No wonder your computer is having such problems. Well, sometimes we need the reset button. We need to reboot. And my question is, if Christianity were to reboot, at some point you just held down the power button until the thing just went off and came back on, what would come up? What would be the first thing that comes up in that moment? Well, I think the first thing that would come up for a Christian who's still living on planet Earth would be you are a disciple. That would be the first thing that came up that characterized and described our lives. That would be the most certain thing about you. Let's face it, you read the Bible. The Bible's not clear on whether you, as an individual, should be married or single. Is it? I mean, by faith we've moved in a direction, one or the other. But it is crystal clear that you are called to be a disciple. That's crystal clear. It's not clear on whether you should go to college or whether you should just go into the workforce. It's not clear in the Bible. But what is crystal clear is that you should be a disciple regardless of that choice. It's not clear whether you should be wealthy or just average in your income or meager in your income. It's not clear on that. But it is very clear that you are called to be a disciple. So what is first and foremost in our world, and our calling, is that we're called to be disciples. And we must reclaim this ground. I'm going, to, I'm going to identify three beaches, kind of the Sword Beach, Juneau Beach, and Omaha Beach for those of you who are World War II buffs, uh, of reclaiming this ground. And it will be awkward ground, I mean you look at the terrain here, do you remember the, the beaches of Normandy had, had a water line that was immediately met by a, a great cliff which gave the Germans an incredible advantage. And reclaiming that ground was going to be difficult and it was going to cost them many lives. I believe reclaiming this ground will be difficult. But I believe there's a few beaches, if you will, that we've, we've got to focus in on. The one that we're going to look at today is the doorway. The doorway into discipleship is a doorway of denying self and embracing the cross. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the second, the discipline of learning The very core of the word disciple is the word for a learner. A disciple is a learner. Christians today have nominalized the learning dynamic of Christianity. We are not learning enough. We are not bringing enough truth to bear on our lives. Is it any wonder how difficult it is to win against a world that is so against us? And the third thing is discipleship means duplication. To be a disciple is to be preoccupied with spiritually duplicating our lives and the gospel into others. So, those will be the three messages that we will deal with. We start today. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 28. I think Matthew chapter 28, by way of a mission statement, obviously provides for us what is known as the Great Commission. If you were playing Monopoly, this would be the start point. This would be where you would set your little dudes if you were the shoe or whoever it was you were this you put this down on Matthew 28 and this would be your beginning point for life on earth I got to say this uh, life on earth for a Christian I just throw this out just as a as a qualifier for much of what you're going to hear today because I am focused today on life on earth uh, the great commission has a very limited lifespan to it we will not live it in heaven in light of eternity is not it is not the greatest priority Evangelism is not the greatest priority. Worship would be the greatest priority. Evangelism would be a a calling of the people of God in this setting at this time. Uh, And I think that's very important. I'm trying to resist running off on that thought. uh, But it's very important because churches sometimes miss the glory of God and the worship of this glorious God as being primary in the reason why we're here together and why we exist The primary reason is not to win the lost. That is a means of glorifying God. It is not the end of the road. Eternity exists for God the glorious one to be the center of all thoughts and all glory going to him forever. We do that here, but we're going to do it in eternity in a very different way. We won't do it by evangelizing the lost. But right now, there's a huge element of our lives that is absorbed in the Great Commission, and it should be. Let's look at this thought. Matthew 28. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, if we wanted to know what are we doing, what on earth are we doing? That question touches our lives. It touches every one of us individually. It answers the question of why you have the talents that you have, why you have the money that you have, why you have the energy level that you have, why you are in the strategic location and relationships that you are in. By God's sovereign purpose, you are in those settings To make disciples. That's the call of God that is occupying our lives as believers. So amidst all the questions about who who am I and who do people think I am, this this answers for me. This is the reference point for who am I on earth right now. I am a disciple maker. That's what I'm called to be. I'm called to be a disciple. That's the call of God to me. And then I'm, I'm deployed to make disciples. But when I look at this, and I want to start in a little bit different place today, the Great Commission does not start with the word go. Now, most of us treat it like it does. The Great Com- What's the Great Commission? Go into all the world. No, no, no. The Great Commission starts right before that. It starts with the authority. And who has the authority to tell you to go? Who has the, the right, the authority, to tell you what to do with your life? Because this is where Christianity falls to pieces. It's why we have to start here today. Because, this, I mean, the reality of my life, all the headaches in my life, all the difficulty in my life, are coming from my competition with God as to who has the final say so over my life. Now, I, ultimately, we're all in agreement. Ultimately, I know God has the say so over my life. I know that ultimately. But moment by moment, we are at odds with each other, moment by moment, because I don't feel like doing that. I'm not inspired to do that. That's not my specialty. I'm not really drawn to that person. See, there's a lot of reasons why I want to have say-so over my life. The Great Commission has to start with who's going to be in charge. Am I going to be in charge? Or is Christ going to be in charge? And denying self is a crucial part of that. William Phillip says this, The Christian gospel is more than just a wonderful offer of saving grace. It is a demand for supreme loyalty for surrender to the lordship of Jesus. We forget this too easily in our contemporary church, besieged as we are by a philosophy of pluralism that rejects ultimate authority. Please, I can't say that enough because you are going to see it more and more and more. You live in a culture of pluralism more so than you've ever known it in the past. A pluralism that makes everything right and nothing specifically right. Everything is right in its own way. So if you don't want to do that, you're probably right for not wanting to do it. And that's your view. And you should be entitled to that. And that mindset is too prevalent. It's pluralism that rejects ultimate authority in a culture of rights that scorns submissiveness. I think if one had to give out a bumper sticker to children when they were born from the womb and say, put this on your car when you get old enough, we'd probably say, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> Because we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. As a matter of fact, we've created a culture that almost makes it sound like it's wrong for you to even try to tell somebody else what to do. And so this lack of submissiveness, we, we don't have, you will not breathe the air of this world and come away humbled and seeking your place, seeking to get underneath something, seeking for something else to be in charge of you, greater than you, telling you what to do. You will not breathe the air of this world and walk away feeling that way. When you breathe the air of this world, you will want to be in charge. You will want to be independent. You will want to have your own rights. You'll want to be able to sue everybody. Welcome to the planet. But not welcome to the Bible. Some 600 years almost before Christ, Daniel pens these words. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, It used to be the word servant was in vogue in Christianity. You could use that word servant. People recognize that we are servants of God. I'm just a servant of God. I don't hear that much anymore. I don't hear that language. I read books. I don't see the emphasis there. When I read popular Christianity, I don't see the emphasis there. And we would do well to recognize that in the economy of God, there is one. This Son of Man comes with authority. And he expects his creation to serve him, to abandon our personal interests and our personal kingdom potential and to simply be a part of his, a part of his, not great in his, not the centerpiece of his, a part of his kingdom. That's what God is up to. And yet we are in a world that is not up to that question. Who is Jesus Christ? And what does he require in man's response? Who is he? In the world we live in, most folks would think Jesus is a very significant religious figure in human history. Perhaps even the most significant figure in human history. He he would be honored, I think, that way. For some folks, it may be a little bit more personal than that. For some folks, Jesus is somewhat of a spiritual advisor. For people as they walk through life. He, he had great ideas. He was, he was cutting edge in the way in which he spoke. He said unusual things. And, and I want to seek out his advice on my journey. See, the, the problem is, it is my journey. And Jesus is invited to be a part of it. And when I read Daniel... And I read Jesus Christ standing up and saying, all authority is given to me. Now you go do this. When I hear the way he's postured, I don't find him joining us on journeys. I find the call of God calling us to join him in what he is doing and who he is. Do you know how many Christian churches would not stand up and say, this morning I would like to teach you How to have Jesus join you on your journey. Now they won't open the service with that, but the entire service and the message preached will ultimately be about that. It will locate its center in you, and in your interest, in your talents, in your potential, in your ability to have. And then it will will teach you how to get Jesus to be a part of that. Methodologies to pray, how faith operates, to get God to do. And I am the center, and God is aiding me. And we are a Christian church. This is is not the ground of discipleship. And this is a bloody battle, and it will be a challenge to fight, and you will see counter-thoughts everywhere you go. I love Mark Driscoll's. You're not familiar with Mark Driscoll. Mark is an an interesting individual. (laughs) Uh, He wrote a review of John Piper's book, What Jesus Demands from the World. John Piper chose those words very carefully and intentionally. But I love Mark's perspective on who this Jesus is. He says, this is a peculiar book. It assumes that Jesus not only does things for us, but also makes demands of us. It assumes that Jesus has authority over everyone. You will hear from a Jesus who is more than a soft-spoken, effeminate, marginalized, Galilean hippie peasant in a dress. (laughs) and has a peculiar notion that he alone is Lord. And that long description by Mark with his colorful abilities. You know, the the green world that we live in, the everything is beautiful in its own way that we are part of, uh, the humanistic center of our universe, welcomes the ever-loving hippie Jesus. Doesn't it? Jesus went around everywhere, man. He was just loving people, dude. And he'd just get involved. He didn't care, man. Pimp, prostitute, whatever. He was there, man. He was loving them. That's the problem with the church, man. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. Well, did you read much of what this Jesus had to say? I had a conversation with a woman in Starbucks one day. <clears throat> who she loved that Jesus. And so I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I offend you without you knowing I'm offending you? <clears throat> So I just began to ask her some questions. Would you be surprised that the Bible also says this? Would you, would you be surprised that Jesus also said this and this and this? And it was all those dynamics of Jesus that demanded something of people. That put responsibility for you to respond to me a certain way. Not just, hey man, I'm just here to love people, okay? You know, whatever that looks like. You want to smoke some dope with me? Come on, man, I'm Jesus, you know? That's the picture That's not the picture in the Bible. He's the Son of Man. The kingdom, the entire creation was prepared for Him. To serve Him. And to point to Him. And for Him to receive every ounce of significance in the universe, from our lives, everything we do, everything we do, every attitude, every belief, every response, every value system we ever create is intended to show one thing, the glory of Jesus Christ. Right. See, if you start discipleship anywhere else, you will build a kingdom around ourselves. And unfortunately, that has become too prevalent in Christianity. Well, what does this Lord call us to do? Luke chapter 9. Turn there with me. We're just going to look at one passage, a little bit of detail today. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It's interesting when we're trying to ask, answer the question of, who is this Jesus? Why does he get the right to say this? The context here in Luke chapter 9 you back up a few verses, Jesus asks His disciples, Who do men say that I am? Man, who, do, who do people say I am? And just a few verses later, we have this Son of Man. I and mean, this is an interesting term there. It's in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many The Son of Man. That, that phrase comes from Daniel. That's where its origins are. In that passage, the Son of Man, the one for whom everything was created. That one, who we find out at the end of Matthew, has all authority. And he calls people to something in verse 23. He says, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Here's the paradox Following Christ. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I just want to look at verse 23 here. This call, this this front page brochure call. This is this is not for those who are been saved for ten, fifteen years. This is not seminary language. This is nice to meet you. Interested in Christianity, are you? Jesus said to all if anyone, anyone, if any of you have a notion of coming after me, here would be the components. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now let's talk. Are you interested in being a disciple? And that's the call of discipleship. Christian discipleship, and <clears throat> your outline says, Christian discipleship does not merely begin with a pleasant yes to Jesus. It also begins with a painful no to me. This is ground that must get recaptured. How many of us just want to consider Jesus? How many of us want to listen to a motivational speech and at the end of it be told, if you just like to receive Jesus right now, just pray this prayer with me. People would love that. I mean, Jesus sounds nice. He sounds like he wants to come into my world and make it better. He sounds like he's aware that I'm broken. He wants to fix me. He wants to keep me on my way and my journey. Sure, I'll say yes to that deal. Who wouldn't? But Christianity doesn't just begin with a pleasant yes to Jesus. It begins with a painful no to me. J.C. Ryle says, a little formal church going and... A decent attendance, a place of worship, can never be the Christianity of which Christ speaks in this place. Where is the self-denial? Where is our daily carrying of the cross? Kent Hughes, his commentary on Luke, he says, How dissonant this sounds in today's Christian culture. As James Davidson Hunter pointed out, fascination with the self and with our own ways of seeing things has become a well-established cultural feature of evangelicalism. Self focus is part of the modern evangelical identity. This is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians care little about the glory of God or reaching out to a lost world. For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, their marriages, their bank accounts, their prestige. But to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Christ, no thanks. Listen, we are, we are living in a culture that, that listen, we are absorbing the culture in us. We are in the environment. We're breathing the same air. It's kind of that thing I call secondhand smoke. Well, I may not have my lips on the cigarette, but I'm breathing in the same stuff everybody else is breathing in. And it gets into my system, and it affects me, and it's affecting us. And we, we live in a culture... That cannot stand inconvenience must less suffering and difficulty and self denial we don 't like to be inconvenienced. we complain when something takes too long that 's not even pain that 's just delay so this is this is in us um, the other night we had a, a, a meeting with all the the staff and our covenant group together and uh, we spent some time, it was a wonderful time, just listening to how they are carrying the burden for the church. One of the things I asked them to do was is identify issues of vulnerability for the church that we should be aware of and we should be praying for. And several identified an issue that had to do, the, the word entitlement would be probably the best word, I think that capsulized that, that we live in a culture and it's beginning to seep its way into the church where we, we feel a sense of entitlement. We feel we're entitled to certain things. We feel life should go a certain way for us. People should treat us a certain way. And if they don't, that's going to be a problem. And that mindset that thrusts me into favorable standing and favorable conditions. And and we've had some discussion for, probably for, I don't know, over the past year or two, of a growing concern for the younger generation that is, how do I say wanting too much too soon in their lives. Not not patient, not willing to wait, wanting to draw everything into their life. first year of marriage, everything, you know, new everything, big everything, you know stuff that our parents waited until they were much, much older to have in life. Today, there is a, it's an entitlement mentality, and we even see it in the church world. Well my wife was in the doctor's office um, just a couple of days ago. She picked up this uh, Time magazine special edition, 2008. And I have to just read this quote. For you, and I'm actually we're going to come back in another series probably in May, and I'll address this philosophy a little bit further. But Deidre Van Dyke, this is writing for Times, not a Christian publication. It's a very insightful analysis, though. Talking about the millennial generation, You know baby boomers, baby busters, millennials. The millennials' appetite for luxury is good news for retailers because, as Harrison points out, it wears off on the parents around them. One look at a college parking lot full of Audis, Saabs, and BMWs demonstrates that this generation isn't waiting to earn its luxury products and services. It already feels entitled to them. There's an expectation that they deserve luxury now. It's not something you wait for and earn. One researcher said, I call them the prematurely affluent generation. (coughs) Listen, it's very difficult if that's the world that we live in. Self-denial is very difficult in a world that teaches you self-indulgence all the time. And then, not only self-indulgence, but you deserve it. So that if you don't get it, you cop an attitude about not getting it. Somebody's to blame here, because I'm being done wrong. This is not an environment conducive... For Luke chapter 9, verse 23. But nevertheless, it is the environment that we've got to to live out Christianity in this world. Jesus put two elements together when he talked about following him. Following requires, one, denying self, and two, taking up my cross. I think they're very related. I think taking up my cross is the means of denying self. But denying self, I would put some meat on it by saying, denying self means deprioritizing my agenda. I have an agenda. I want certain things. There will be times in which what I want actually has been formed in my heart by God and I'm wanting what God wants. So I don't want everybody to think the moment you lock onto a desire, God's against it. Deny that. Don't ever do anything you want to do. No, No, that wouldn't be biblical. But there is an element that I need to hold my agenda with a sense of God has veto power over it. That I maybe misunderstood. I thought that was the agenda. I thought that's what I should do. I thought I was wired for that But God has the right at any moment, because remember, he has all authority. So if he comes at any moment and says, we're we're changing course, tomorrow you don't do that anymore, you do this. That's not a moment where you take God to court. You don't go hire an attorney and say, I'm so disillusioned about God. No, God was always, always had the right to say, go, or stop, or change course. He has all authority. The kingdom exists for him. It's right for him to do that. Denying self means deprioritizing my agenda. It means refusing my appetites. I will want things. And I will want them bad. And I will set my heart and my affections on them. Denying myself may mean refusing that. It means overruling my best thoughts and my best opinions. I mean, listen, Most of, I don't know how logical some, everybody is here, but you know, there's very little that I do that I don't think through. If I choose a cereal box, there's a reason for it. It doesn't just fall into my cart. My children don't, aren't allowed to grab things. And start, there has to be a reason. I have to have a reason to buy that. Maybe you're not that obsessive, but I am. So I can fall in love with my best thoughts because I've thought them out. I have a reason for why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, denying self sometimes may mean your reasons aren't good enough, Keith. <laughs> you're not going to do it that way. But I've thought it out. This is a good way to do it denying yourself may mean call it good all you want you're not doing that and i have to be okay with that i have to embrace that taking up my cross i would i would say it means embracing a painful tool of death a painful tool of death taking up your cross will be excruciating when we, something hurts real bad, we call it excruciating. That was excruciating. You know what those two words are that make up that? Excrucier. Ex meaning out of. Crucier from the word crux, which means cross. When something is excruciating, it's out of the cross. It is a pain. The cross was perhaps the most brutal, painful way to die that perhaps any civilization ever created. The cross is painful. When we read this text, we cannot walk away from this thinking that, oh, I I love these principles. You know, I love the principle of self-denial, that I'm going to go on in God, self-denial. You're going to go on in God with self-denial by applying the cross to your life, and it will be excruciating when you do it. Do not become disillusioned. Some of us aren't ready for pain. We've invented a Christianity that's not painful. There's elements to Christianity that are quite painful. A.W. Tozer says, Though the cross of Christ has been beautified by the poet and the artist, the avid seeker after God is likely to find in it the same savage implement of destruction it was in the days of old. The way of the cross is still the pain racked path to spiritual power and fruitfulness. That's where the cross takes us. But along the way, getting there can be very painful. Denying self plus taking up my cross means I won't be doing what my flesh strongly wants to do and it will be painful. The cross, this is important, I think. The cross is more than a theological concept to be pondered. It is a real life event to be experienced. It is a place, a season, an experience where something about us dies. Often a slow, agonizing death that precedes the last gasp. That's what death on a cross looked like. It was not death by firing squad. There are issues in us that when God puts his hand on them and chooses to eradicate their influence from our lives, they will die on a cross, not at a firing squad. Initially, they will struggle and they will resist and they will cling to life for as long as possible. They will heave and there will be pain and it will be excruciating before the last gasp of that thing and it is gone. That's the picture of take up your cross daily. That was before everybody who understood what the cross was. Question. Will following Christ work if I refuse to deny myself and take up my cross? See, Jesus put these thoughts all together. If anyone would come after me, if that's what's going to occur, then you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Is it possible for us to refuse God and do what we want and still follow Him? I mean, do you understand how, you know, when you put it in that kind of blunt terms, it's kind of like, uh, duh, Keith, no. But how many times are we living practically exactly that way? Listen, I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. I hope you're not shocked by that there are moments in which I have an agenda that I, I don't want to do God's agenda right now. I have some other things in mind. I don't want to do that because that looks painful. That looks embarrassing. Whatever, there is some form of discomfort or inconvenience in that and I don't want to do that. In that moment, I can't follow Christ. I can follow me, but I can't follow Christ. Um. I was going to say, I love this dynamic, but I don't love this dynamic. It seems like I can be preparing for a message, and God will just kind of, almost like the soup is being cooked, and he takes a spoon and says, Ooh, here, Keith, how about a taste? How about you get to taste this? Just last night, just last night, it's late. I'm going to put my final look at the notes, pray over them, pray for the service, and my wife and I get into a conflict. And I didn't like the way she was serving up her observations to me. And there was not a great deal of willingness for me to listen for her heart. That was more important than the way in which she was trying to get me to understand her heart. See, in that moment, I found fault in the way you're telling me what's in your heart. And the way my actions have affected you are now being blurred by, I don't like the way you're saying that. In that moment, I did not jump for joy with the thought of, humble yourself and, and simply agree with what you know she's saying is true. Right? She went to bed. We got up this morning. I was out early. We still have not resolved this. She's somewhere in the building here. <laughs> It would be very easy, a day later, I'm in a much better position, but it would be very easy for me, I I don't want to humble myself. I don't know too many people who just jump up and down for joy and go, ooh, humble myself, yeah, I feel right, but I'm going to humble myself for you. But yet, if I'm going to follow Christ, there is a point in which I need to deny me that aspect of me that wants to do it my way, that wants to respond my way, rather than respond God's way, no matter what that way is. Listen, denying ourselves is not an easy thing. I believe it is the most difficult thing that we ever, ever do. But it's every day. You take up your cross daily. Now, I think there's great harm in Christianity in that we have, we have made certain aspects of following Christ Optional, and we are way too unwilling. We have somehow incorporated options into our Christianity and unwillingness, and we have welcomed them there. It's like we're walking around trying to follow Christ, and I have options, and I am unwilling. I, I can't find that. That's not in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. I don't have options. See, I don't, I don't have the option as to whether I want to humble myself or not. You know, I, well, I, you understand, I didn't because of this. Well, that, that's not an option. You know, giving. Like we, like we come before God and we have the option of whether we want to give or not. Well, you know, sometimes if I'm doing okay, I give. When did that become optional? Go into all the world. Well, you know, if I can, I will. But, you know, I've got options here. Serving. Reaching out. Denying myself. Enduring something that's difficult. I could get to a place where I don't want to do that. Well, when did I don't want to become part of Christianity. This is a fatal, fatal flaw. It will affect every aspect of every life here. If I hold on to the idea that I have options. Listen, options sound kind, don't they? Aren't they kind? They're not kind when only one choice leads to life and the rest of them do not. Now your options are no longer kind. And having them and insisting on them is foolish and whoever gave them to you is a bigger fool than you are. And God didn't give us that. There's an element here that God, in his wisdom, has helped us with. Question. Do you see self-denial and embracing the cross daily as a good thing? Is it good? I don't always feel like it's good. This same passage gets uh, reported as well by Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. The inf- interesting context there, because a little more detail of the story is given. Who do men say that I am? Peter chimes up quickly. You are Christ, the Son of God. Remember? Peter's great moment in the sun, which lasted for, I don't know, 38 seconds. He does great. He acknowledges who Christ is. And Jesus turns around and says, the, the Son of Man, let go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Be handed over into the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Peter's about to sink to his low point now. He goes from, you are the Christ, the Son of God, to, no, may it never be. You—that would never happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. See, Jesus saw the cross as a good thing, and you're in the way of a good thing. Peter, a disciple, saw the cross as a bad thing. Do you understand? You and I won't always delight in the cross. We will not always see self-denial and and the death that the cross brings to our existence. We will not always see that as a good thing. Peter didn't see it. He opposed it in the life of Christ. In that moment, we don't get Jesus turning and saying to him, Peter, not only me, but you too. You're going to walk this road as well. Because if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me to the cross as well. So what Peter so much didn't want for Jesus, he was going to have to endure himself at one point as well. But listen to the wisdom here. This is the kindness of God. He says, What are the terms of discipleship? Only one with a perfect knowledge of mankind could have dared to make them. Only the Lord of men could have risked the effect of such rigorous demands. Let him deny himself. We hear these words and shake our heads in astonishment. Can we have heard aright? Can the Lord lay down such severe rules at the door of the kingdom? He can, and he does. If he is to save the man, listen, if he is to save the man, he must save him from himself. It is himself which has enslaved and corrupted the man. Deliverance comes only by denial of that self. Was it Pogo was it that said, we have found the enemy and he is us? Have you yet become convinced that the biggest problem you have in the world is you? Without question. I am, I am my biggest problem because there's, there's this amazing thing about Christianity, about the Holy Spirit living in a believer, about the power of God that's present in me, that if I travel through life and I get into the darkest, most difficult place that I could be in, in a very unpreferential location, I have a resource from God that can be to me in that moment everything I would ever need to have peace and joy and to exist in that setting. You know the only thing disrupting that? It's not the people who made this situation, by the way. Oh, it's you because you turned the light down on my life. It's you because you failed me again. It's you because I've got to deal with you. We live our whole lives frustrated and angry at everybody because we're trying to fix everybody. Well, have I realized that if I would just deny myself and receive the grace of God in that moment, I'd be okay. Even in that moment, I'd be fine. But I'm not fine. And you know why I'm not fine? It's not because of you. I'm not fine because of me. I was just reading a little blog that CJ put out the other day. I've heard him say this before. I am the worst sinner that I know. Now, I know sometimes it takes us a little while to chew on things because a lot of us are married. (laughs) You'll get that when you go home. And we think somebody else, no, 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 listen, you don't, know my, you don't know my friend or my brother or this or that. No, you don't know them that well either, but you know you real well. If you'd be honest, you are the worst sinner you know, because you know yourself so well. I know all the corrupt motives and thoughts that float around me on a daily basis. I know temptation and how it comes to me. I know how many times I fail. Well, I don't know how many times I fail, but I know a whole lot of them. And I don't really know that about you. So I am. I am the worst sinner that I know. I am the biggest problem on the planet as far as I'm concerned. God needs to save me from me more than anything else. Self-denial and the cross save me from me. So that I can enter into the abundance of the grace of God that I am standing in the way of. What a wonderful day it will be for me, I long for, when everybody else no longer has to be perfect in my world in order for me to walk with joy and peace. You know, all the mail doesn't have to sound a certain way. All the financial statements don't have to line up with numbers that look a certain way. I don't have to listen to an economic report and has to sound a certain way. My neighbors don't have to be a certain way. My children don't have to be a certain way or you start creating this list, I'm waiting on the planets to align for me to have joy and peace. That's never going to happen. But yet the Bible says that I'm capable of having joy and peace in the Holy Spirit right now. Why aren't I having it? It's not because the planets aren't lined up. It's because I refuse to respond to these circumstances in a way that's God-glorifying. I refuse. I will not. I don't like this. i got a bad attitude about it. I'm the problem. And God, in his mercy, knew I would be the problem. So you, you want to come after me? Always hold on to this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Come on. I have to walk every day underneath that umbrella. Tozer goes on and says, No man in his own strength can shed the chains with which self has bound him. But in the next breath, the Lord reveals the source of the power, which is to set the soul free. Let him take up his cross. See, the cross brings power with it to accomplish this self-denial. It's the cross that brings the power. It's not my self-determination. It's the cross and the work of the cross that comes to my life to bring the power from me to say no to me. So these two things must go together. Denial of self and taking up my cross, they they have to go together because I cannot accomplish the first without the second. Question, is the cross a good thing? Is it something you're running toward or running away from? Do you see the cross, the excruciating cross, do you see the cross as a portal to another world? You know, it's the armoire in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. They call it a wardrobe, I guess. It's, it's a portal into another world. It's, and it's a strange thing to pass through because it looks like it's going to kill you rather than bring you life. You don't look on the cross, right? You see agony on the cross. You see slow death on the cross. You see pain on the cross. You see last gasp of air. You don't ascribe that the cross has life in it. It's a portal to life. It's the thing you've got to travel through in order to have real life. It's that transference from, from caterpillar to butterfly. Now listen, some of, us, some of us are wealthy caterpillars. We're king of the caterpillars. We're popular caterpillars. It's a hard thing to die when that's how you feel about yourself, right? I mean, I'm a caterpillar. You're asking me to do something called the butterfly. I'm not even sure I even know what that is. I just know you're calling me to bring an end to me. I don't know if i like that. There's a lot I like about me. I'm calling you to, to get set free from you. I'm calling you to fly. I'm calling you to a life that you need even begin to understand what it is. I'm calling you to be something else. But the only way for you to get there is for you to die and enter into that. It can be a challenge to die. Let me just hit these bullets real quick before we stop. Matt, you can get ready. to Come on up. Is the cross a good thing? Well, the cross liberates us from ourselves. Oh, that's a good thing. Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's your choice. A moment of excruciation or a life of enslavement. That's what the cross is. It's breaking the chains of sin. Are you sick of that yet? Don't you just get sick of yourself. (laughs) The same issues traffic in and out of our lives over and over and over again. The cross liberates us from ourselves. The cross severs us from Adam. That condemned race of men and joins us to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Remember Romans 8 we looked at a few weeks ago. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How would you get in Christ? Through the cross we came in Christ where there is no condemnation. Romans 7 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So The, the, the cross comes and it severs my relationship To being in Adam. There's the, the only way out of these feelings of condemnation that come in my life. And guilt because I'm wrong. Ultimately, wrong feelings are because I'm wrong with God. That's the ultimate place. Well, if you're in Adam, you are wrong with God. And if I live like I'm in Adam, I'm going to feel like I'm wrong with God. I'm going to walk around in guilt and shame and not being able to deal with my issues. The cross severs that. I embrace the cross. It removes that realm of Adam out of my life. Puts me in a place where I am accepted in the Beloved. No longer in a land of condemnation. The cross delivers me from the control of this world. And that quoted this passage in Galatians 6. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Oh, what a wonderful day. I don't have to wake up the next morning and find out whether all my clothing are out of style. I need to go put myself in debt because these pants, I can't wear these pants. I can't wear those shoes. Why? Because the flaky world decided that there's a new trend in town. Oh Lord, thank you for crucifying the world to me and me to the world. I don't have to live under the weirdness of the world. I don't have to keep up with the Joneses. I don't have to compare with somebody else. I don't have to do that. The world's been crucified to me. Listen, every one of us who knows what it's like to traffic under the weight of these comparisons and how we feel about ourselves, how many of us don't feel good about our lives because of the way we feel about somebody else's life? They got more than we do. Oh, why did they get the that and I don't? Well, how how about not wanting what they got so bad? How about being severed from that? How about having a cross come like a blade and cut that off of your life so I can wake up in the morning i don 't have to think through those things. I don't have to stare in the mirror and wonder, should I Botox or not? i don 't know if anybody's botoxing around here, but my goodness, my wife and I have run into some people in like restaurants i don't know if they i don 't know if they 've been Botox or they 've been to a carnival. But, because they look like they're, like they're staring into someone in those mirrors that distorts your face and like they've, they've actually inserted a balloon in their head and their face is kind of like are you going to pop at any moment you look a little too tight you know this is like a 55 year old woman who looks like honey don't, don't sit next to her she could go off at any moment it's like I'm thinking that, that cannot be natural <laughs> do you know what you look like yeah I can't see your wrinkles but your head is too big you know it's like, Whatever. I like, how nice to be freed from that. <laughs> oh. The cross opens a new dimension of life to me. Romans 7 says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. See, now every one of these things and I just mentioned, and more, they're all true. They're all true right now. Whether you take up your cross or not, they are all true right now. Here's the disconnect for Christians. It's as though we have this inheritance, as though you had a relative, and you did. It's your elder brother, who went to the cross and gave you an inheritance. But if you're ignorant of that inheritance, he could have stuck a million dollars in your bank account. That million dollars is yours. If you live your life, though, without embracing it and recognizing it's yours, you'll never write a check against it. And you'll live like a poor person. And you'll die. And you'll stand before God. And He will pull your bank account out. He will say, Do you know how wealthy you were all those years? I've given you this, and this, and this, and this. And you walked in bondage and in heaviness and lacking joy you had an inheritance all those years but you didn't do what I told you to do I told you to take up your cross it's not enough guys that we know about a cross it's not enough that we have a theological concept called a cross this excruciating instrument shows up in your life in a real way and I have to take it up in my life. Let me close with this last thought from Mr. Tozer. He says, in every Christian's heart, there's a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. Now, I'm, I agree and disagree with him on that. I think he has a good intention in that, but I actually, we're not capable of putting ourselves on the cross. Christ put us on the cross when He went to the cross but applying these things is what we need to be concerned about. Not just having a theological concept. Oh, I was crucified with Christ. That's great. It's critically true. How are you doing experiencing that? Written any checks against that lately? Embraced the cross yesterday, this past week? If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved But we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us. No dethronement. No dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of Mansoul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Let's stand up together. Lord, give us grace this morning to have eyes to see and ears to hear our lives in light of Your truth. Lord, how sad, how sad it will be one day to have found out that thing that we ran away from so often in our lives that temptation that we succumb to, to avoid pain, the pain of the cross, saying no to something that we deeply desired. Lord, how sad one day when we realize that moment it was a doorway, it was a portal into a life of abundance. To a life of joy and peace and freedom and overcoming deliverance. A life of your nearness to us. A life of transformation. Lord, this room is full of disciples. Lord, bring us back to the ground that we must start with. That's your invitation that we would deny ourselves and take up what will be at times an excruciating cross and die on it so that we might live. Lord, I thank you for that song. Oh, the wonderful cross. It bids me come and die so that I might truly live. Oh, Lord, would you convince us this morning to stop running away from our encounter with the cross. To stop running away from denying ourselves. To run toward it and to embrace its tears and its effect upon our lives. Oh Lord, we cannot follow you if we will not do this. We will stop at some point. Lord, we need grace this morning. a moment, Matt's going to help us to sing these truths and then it will be very helpful for us to hear them in song. But I want to recognize this morning that there are some here who you are in the throes of excruciation through whatever place or season or event you experiencing the pain of dying to yourself. This morning I want to ask the Lord for grace to help you to not run from it. I don't run from the cross. To submit to it and to embrace the death that brings life. Well, you don't want to stay alive apart from the life that's on the other side of that cross. You don't want that life. You don't want a life of enslavement. You want the freedom that comes on the other side of that death. And there would be some here. You're here, and there are relationships that are requiring of you right now an enormous amount of self denial for you to be in that relationship you're having to say no to you in order to say yes to that oh don't run from that try and fix it you are escaping the very thing that God wants to use in your life to bring you to life there's some here who are struggling through issues of purity in their lives and denying yourself is not an easy thing you are wrestling with this Oh, don't run from that. Don't give in. Deny yourself. The other side of that denial is life. There's some here that that your work environment is a daily denial of yourself. And the temptation is to run away from it. I just want to fix this. I I I want to live a pain free life. And God has placed you in a place that's bringing about a deeper death in your life. It's good. It's leading you into something else. There's some singles here who are being denied the pleasure, the desire to be married. And there are seasons for you where that is excruciating. There are others who are here who are just simply waiting. You have your own category. You're waiting. And you're trying to say no to your impatience and to your frustration and to your anger to continue to wait in your season. Listen, don't pull the plug on the pain that comes from the cross. Jesus, Something's not broke, okay? You, you, You didn't inherit like some strange version of Christianity. This is Christianity in its first step. If you would come after me, you would have to deny yourself and embrace an excruciating instrument of death. So if you're here this morning, I want to pray for grace for you. Maybe you'd like to be prayed for. You hear I just wanna as Matt closes us in song. If you want to come forward and just just ask God, God, help me. Give me grace to walk where I'm walking. This is a painful death, God. It has reached into the depth of my soul. I don't know if I'm gonna make it. God, you gotta give me grace. I want to be able to die on this cross so that I can live, I can embrace a life that you have for me. You feel led just as Matt leads us. You feel led to come. You come. You come, and you ask for grace from God.
1: Yeah.